Welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast, the Purdue University's Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host, Jim Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. We're going to review the results from the September Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer survey of farmers from across the nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspective on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer survey was conducted from September 21st through the 25th of September. And Michael, the barometer went up again. It went up to 156. That's 12 points higher than it was in August. And that puts us 60 points above where we were back in April. Are you surprised? Not really. I think things have really changed since April and May. Um, we, certainly, we've had much better trade news today uh, compared to what we, what, we, what we had in April and May, uh, particularly with regard to China. And, and also, probably just as importantly, if not more importantly, corn prices and soybean prices are substantially higher today uh, than what they were in even late July, early August. And so, uh, and so it's, not, it's not real surprising. And then you add to that, while we were doing this survey this month, uh, there was more, more information was, uh, uh, was given to us uh, related to the second round of, of corona, coronavirus payments, uh, our, our CPAP payments. And so I think that was also uh, very, very optimistic from a farmer's perspective. Yeah, the CPAP announcement uh, came out on the 18th, so just before we started collecting data, and I'm not sure if every farmer um, knew the details, but they certainly probably were there aware of the, uh, the generalities with respect to another round of payments. And it turns out those payments for, for many producers are gonna be pretty substantial. So I think that was a factor along with, as you pointed out, that rally in commodity prices. And you know, if you look at the index of current conditions, especially, um, both indices, the index of current conditions and future expectations rose during September relative to August. But the biggest rise was in the index of current conditions, which jumped uh, 18 points from August uh, to a reading of 142 versus 124. And you have to think a lot of that was driven by the improvement in commodity prices, uh, along with the CPAP payment announcement. Definitely. Um, people did become a little more optimistic about the future, but that was not the big driver behind the improvement in the barometer. The index for future expectations, I think, rose, uh, uh, what, nine points, rose to a reading of 163 versus 154. But the big driver was definitely people feeling better about what's taking place today. And, you know, that was reflected, I think, in the Farm Capital Investment Index. In fact, we got the highest reading of the year for the Farm Capital Investment Index, and I have to say that did surprise me a little bit. I, I, when you think about it from that standpoint, um, the reading was 73 versus 72 back in February, which was the previous high for this year. It was an eight-point improvement compared to August, but um, and I guess I'm probably not going to argue that 73 is any different than 72, so basically about the same as back in February. That's a little surprising that people are feeling that good about uh, making major capital investments in their farming operation. I was a little surprised. It was it was it increased as much as it as it has in the last couple months. But having said that, when we look at potential net returns for 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 a case farm that I that I work with here in Indiana, the the net returns in 2020 now actually look better than what they did in the previous year, and just a 
a very large increase uh, compared to what it looked like two, three months ago. And so, and so I think people are feeling a little bit better about where their working capital situation may be at the end of this year. At least a portion of those that we surveyed are feeling a little bit better about that uh, and, and thinking about capital investments. Yeah. And, you know, if you look back to the low point for the investment index, it, of course, was in April. That was pretty much the low point for everything. The reading back then was 38, which is probably somewhat of an overreaction, but people, you know, in, in response to the uncertainty, I think, just pulled back. Uh, and now we're getting back to people thinking, truthfully, that maybe the investment environment is pretty close to what it was at the beginning of the year. And, you know, the follow-up question that we've been asking uh, starting in March, um, we've been asking explicitly what their plans are for farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to a year ago. And the longer run trend here uh, is kind of interesting. If you look at, uh, again, the low point uh, was back in April. Uh, at that point, I think 63%, actually April and May were about the same, 63 and 65% of the producers in the survey back then said they plan to reduce their farm machinery purchases in the upcoming year compared to the prior year. That percentage has declined all the way to 40%. Um, which, you know, by some people's standards, that's not terribly optimistic, but boy, it's a pretty big swing over a relatively short span of time. And then when you look at the percentage of producers that said they were going to keep their purchases about the same, back in April, that was 29%, and now it's at 49%. So we've seen a big swing there in terms of people being more willing to uh, think about and make plans to make investments, in this case, specifically about farm machinery purchases. Yes, it certainly has been a big swing. And, and you pointed out that I think the most important metric here is the fact that those, are, those that expect to purchases to be about the same has really risen, uh, as you noted, uh, from April to September with, with half of the people now thinking their purchases are going to be about the same uh, in, 20, you know, in September 2020 uh, compared to a year ago. Yeah, we're a little bit handicapped with this question because we only started uh, asking it back in March. So we don't have a longer run series to I'll make some some comparisons uh, too, but um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the course of the winter. And of course, uh, I guess the one thing you and I didn't talk about with respect to some of the optimism, and it probably started to show up a little bit here in the September survey, is at least uh, in in the eastern part of the Corn Belt, the early yield reports for fall harvested crops are very good, and that's probably contributing to some of the optimism as well. And, you know, when we ask about farmland values, um, again, the optimism was showing up. So we asked about farmland prices uh, looking 12 months ahead. Um, the percentage of producers saying that they expect to see higher farmland values rose again. Uh, and it's been rising continuously since April. It's now at 23% expecting higher values in the next 12 months. Last month, it was at 20%. And to get some perspective on that, back in April, only 7% of the producers in the survey said they expected to see higher farmland values in the next 12 months. So we've seen a big swing there. And, you know, it's, um, I think, consistent with the other information we collected, right? 
certainly consistent with the index of current conditions. And this is also one of those uh, one of those metrics. It's probably that probably would vary uh, depending on whether you're in the eastern Corn Belt and the western Corn Belt because of some yield issues, particularly in Iowa. I would expect people to be a little bit more optimistic regarding uh, uh, farmland prices for for the next 12 months. But in the eastern Corn Belt, there's probably room for for quite a bit of optimism there. Yeah, so the, the yield impacts, I guess it's going to be kind of interesting uh, in terms of how much yield loss does take place with respect to the storm damage um, and to some extent dry weather uh, in, the, in the western Corn Belt. But certainly the early reports on yields here in the eastern Corn Belt have been very good, and that's probably contributing to the optimism we're seeing about uh, truthfully everything, whether it be farmland values, uh, capital investment, farm machinery purchases, whatever. Um, we've got a fairly long history of asking people about what they think is going to happen with respect to ag exports. We started asking that, I guess, at the beginning of uh, 2019. And we've been asking over the next five years, do you think ag exports are more likely to increase, decrease, remain about the same? Last month in August, people became pretty optimistic about exports. And they took that percentage expecting increase, uh, an increase in exports not quite, but almost all the way back to where it was in January and February. Here in September, that dropped back a little bit, and it's still stronger than it was um, during the summer, but not by much. And uh, that was kind of curious because I guess, you know, with some of the news about uh, increasing exports to China, you know, I thought maybe that would fuel some longer-term optimism about exports, but um, it doesn't appear to have done that. In fact, people are maybe just a little less optimistic in September about the long-run view of ag exports versus uh, the way they felt back in August. This was one of the more surprising, uh, you know, surprising results of the September survey to me. Uh, like you, I thought they, I thought about two thirds of the people, uh, consistent with last month, would expect exports to increase. One of the things I did note is that when we did the word cloud, when we asked that last question uh, to have people give us their thoughts in general, when we did the word cloud in August and September, in August, uh, trade was very, very important component of that word cloud. A lot of people uh, indicated that. Trade was what was really important uh, and, and said something about trade in their comments. In September, that wasn't the case. And so it's almost like the prices and, 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 the, and the farm bill, potential farm bill payments uh, were more important uh, in, in terms of being on their mind than trade. And so I wonder if that is part of what's going on here. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's, it's very interesting. There, there was a, a different mindset with respect to trade in the September survey than what we saw in August. And we were surprised at how optimistic people became about trade in August because it really jumped. It went from 55% expecting an increase to 67%. I guess you could argue that 58 is maybe more in line with what people were thinking in, you know, during much of the summer because the index was hovering at that 57 to maybe 55% of the people expecting growth in exports. But, uh, um, given the fact that almost every day it seemed like there was a new, another news story about increasing exports, I was a little surprised that it backed up like that. Um, we asked a follow-up question this month, which was uh, new. Uh, do you think it's likely or unlikely that China will fulfill the food and ag import requirements outlined in the phase one um, economic and trade agreement that was signed with the U.S. back in January? And 53%, so slightly over half, said they thought it was unlikely. Now, in fairness, uh, it was probably pretty close to an even split. 53% uh, unlikely, 47% said it was likely. 
But still, that's not very optimistic about uh, seeing China fulfill their phase one trade agreement, is it? It's probably consistent with what we talked about in the, uh, on the previous uh, the previous item, uh, you know, talking about wh- whether exports are going to increase in the next five years. Obviously, China is a huge part of our exports uh, you know, for, for several different commodities, in particular soybeans and pork. And so and so I suppose these are consistent. But again, I, was, I, I thought there'd be a little bit more, a, little, a few, a, a, a quite a few more that thought it was likely that that phase one would be fulfilled. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think you're right. I think the the results of this question probably explains why people were not as optimistic, maybe as we would have expected uh, on the previous one, where we were asking their, their longer term, their five year outlook. Um, they're skeptical about what's going to happen with China, and so that skepticism, I think, is spilling over into the long run prospects for U.S. ag exports. So shifting gears a little bit, Michael, uh, there's been so many programs in agriculture that have shifted over to a virtual format this summer, uh, that we've been asking people questions now for a couple of months. And uh, just to kind of put a little perspective on it, 22% of the producers, so just a little over one out of five, not quite one out of four, said they attended some kind of a virtual field day or a conference this summer. And we followed up with them. If they said they went to one of these conferences, we asked them what they liked about those virtual programs and what they didn't like about those virtual programs. And I thought it was kind of useful maybe to highlight the top two for both of those. What, what do you think? I think definitely, definitely that's the case. And, and it wasn't real surprising to me. Uh, certainly the top one in terms of like and dislike was not surprising. Uh, the top one in terms of what producers like, flexible timing of viewing and attending presentations. I've, I've listened to a lot of uh, uh, virtual conferences or virtual webinars, and I really like that aspect myself. Also, the ability to choose topics of interest. Uh, that's really easy to do on these virtual programs. And so that was the top two in terms of what they like. It's also not that surprising in terms of what they do not like. Uh, Number one was lack of interaction with others attending the meeting. One of the reasons why some people go to to uh, to extension meetings and other ty- other meetings is to interact with other farmers, and and you really can't do that as well with these virtual programs. And so that was the top a thing they did not like. Also, uh, there is still a problem with poor broadband broadband connection in some parts of rural America, uh, and so that was also an issue for some of the farmers. Yeah, and then the third one was kind of interesting for um, uh, both the like and dislike. The, th- I think the third ranked was um, the ability to ask questions. And so some people said they liked that about virtual programs, and some people said they didn't like that about virtual programs. And I, I, that's kind of a puzzling result, but I thought about that for a while. And I suspect uh, it probably just reflects different attitudes from different people. So, you know, my experience and perhaps yours as well is uh, when you're at a a program or making a presentation, a relatively small number of people um, ask questions. Um, I suspect in a virtual format, some of the folks that don't typically ask a question maybe felt like it was easier for them to ask one. And then conversely, the kind of person who perhaps usually does ask questions, maybe found this format a little, uh, a little more difficult to, uh, to pose those questions. Um, but it was kind of interesting. Uh, so some people found it as a good thing and some people found it as a bad thing. So it's um, kind of an interesting perspective. I don't, what's your take on that? 
Yeah, and I, I think there's some people that like other people answer, asking questions because they learn from the answers. And so I think there's also the, a third category. You know, there's people that learn from uh, from the from the answers to to uh, other people's questions. And and it, it just goes back to lack of interaction uh, with others with others attending the meeting. I think that I think that is very important to uh, to producers. Yeah, and I think it speaks to those of us that. Uh, you know, put on these kind of meetings and conferences, whether you're in the education world or you're in the agribusiness world, uh, how you allow people to ask questions is pretty important. And so it's a, uh, that's kind of an evolving technology issue. But one of the challenges is to find uh, ways to make that easy so people can ask their questions and uh, really get out of the, the program what they're hoping to get out of it when they when they attend it. And we didn't ask it, but I think one of the things that that, that helps uh, in virtual programs, at least I, I, I found this in my own viewing of virtual programs, if you have at least some of the some of the sessions as panel. Uh, you know, the panel does team, tend to be more question-oriented. In fact, you can answer questions that was sent uh, to panel panel members, and so I think you have to think about these virtual programs different differently than you would think about an in-person program. Yeah, good point. Uh, we also used uh, this survey as an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what farmers are doing with respect to cover crops, and we focused uh, strictly on people that said they had either a corn or soybean enterprise. And so the percentage of corn soybean farms that said they either have already planted or plan to plant cover crops here in the fall of 2020. Uh, was 39%, so not just almost 40%, almost four out of 10 farms, corn soybean farms, said they're going to plant some cover crops. And I didn't have a strong um, expectation as to what that percentage would be but when we posed the question, but I have to say 40% was a little surprising on the high side. Yeah, I also thought it would be a little lower than that. But, you know, based on what we see driving around uh, and, and interviewing and talking to folks, that, that seemed like a high percentage. And so, fortunately, we did ask a follow-up question. Um, we asked them what percentage of their acreage uh, they were going to devote to cover crops. So, this is what percentage of their corn and soybean acreage that they were going to devote to cover crops. And I think maybe this explains why that 40% was as high as it was, or 39% was as high as it was. 52%, so a majority of the farms that are going to plant cover crops here in the fall of 2020, said that they would plant less than one-third uh, one third or less of their corn soybean acreage. Um, so I think we've got a lot of folks that are planting some cover crops, but they're certainly not planting it on all of their corn acreage and corn soybean acreage. Another thing I found kind of interesting, you know, looking behind the scenes on, on the, these cover crop questions is it's, it's, it's like a lot of other technologies. Those that are fairly new to the game uh, tend to start relatively small and see how it works. Those that had more experience in planting cover crops actually are planting more acreage to cover crops, more of their corn and soybean acreage to cover crops, just like you'd expect with any other technology. That's a good point. The other thing that I think came out in the survey was um, there is a portion of folks that present or plant a very high percentage of their corn soybean acreage to cover crops. Um, I think 27% of the producers of the corn soybean producers in our survey said that they planted um, or intended to plant uh, two thirds or more of their, of their corn soybean acreage to cover crops. And actually when you dug one level deeper than that, the most common response among that group was to say they were going to plant 100% of the corn soybean acres to cover crops. 
So you've kind of got two two disparate kind of groups. You've got a group of people who are, I guess, uh, firmly convinced of the benefits of cover crops, and they are devoting either all or almost all of their acreage to cover crops. And then you've got another group, um, which is a majority of the people in our survey, who are maybe, as you kind of point out, still trying to learn about cover crops and trying to make the decision. And, and they're putting a relatively small percentage of their acreage, I think. I think when I looked at the average of the people who said that they were going to plant less than a third of one third or less of their acreage, I think the average was around 20% of their acreage. So about one out of five acres. And that to me is a group of people who have either targeted some specific acres that, that they think they need cover crops on, or perhaps as you pointed out, maybe it's a new technology to them and, and they're still trying to learn more about it. So very interesting, uh, and we'll probably do some more research on that to learn a little bit more about uh, how people are using cover crops and, and what their uh, success factor is with that. So that kind of wraps up our discussion for today. So for more details about the Purdue CME Group Ag Economy Barometer, you can go to our website, purdue.edu slash agbarometer. Um, we've also got a Crop Outlook webinar coming up later this week on October 9th. USDA releases the October crop production and world ag supply demand estimates earlier that today, uh, earlier that day. And so just a few hours after that, we'll provide an update uh, with respect to the outlook for corn and soybeans uh, live on the webinar. You can register for the webinar at purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So encourage you to do that. And of course, if you can't catch it live, you can always catch the uh, recorded version on our YouTube channel. So uh, I encourage you to short, share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of Michael Langemeyer and the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for listening.